Uh, good evening, everybody. It's good to see familiar faces, good to see new faces. As Jim said, I was around City Reform for a while. I miss City Reform. It's a great church. It's a good church. Looking back on my time at City Reformed, I can say that it's a church that is real, seems to be authentic. It seems to be able to capture the essence of the Psalms, like Jim was talking about, able to face sin, reality, pain, suffering. Everything's not always great, that kind of feel. But at the same time, there's a lot of hope, a lot of able people in city reform that can help, that can minister, that can serve. And my wife and I and my son, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old son, James, grown up fast. We miss it. We miss being at city. Uh, we moved out towards Robinson, where we live in Robinson now. And I took a job as a part-time ministry assistant at a PCA church out there in Robinson called Providence. Did that for about a year and uh, ended up being just a little bit too much work. I might have overworked myself, I'm not sure, but I work full-time. Uh, I'm a lead counselor. I guess I might have a couple other titles, I'm not sure. Uh, at an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab called Adult and Teen Challenge in Cheswick, PA. I've been doing that for... Well, over six years now. And we just opened up a newer program within Teen Challenge, a, a more of a clinical type of program, and I'm part of that team. We did that uh, almost two years ago now, and that's going really well. We serve adult males at our location. There's adult and teen challenges all over the world, though, that serve adolescents, women, uh, and males. So it's great to be here. We're going to look at Psalm 86 tonight. Psalm 86, it's on page 5 of your bulletins there. Okay, so as it says there at the top, this is a Psalm of David. David wrote most of the Psalms. If you have a Bible, the Psalms are in the middle of the Bible, basically. You just flip the Bible open with equal amount of pages on both sides, you would see the book of Psalms. There they are. Most of the Psalms were written by David. And this is a prayer of David, most likely when he was undergoing persecution from Saul during that period of his life. And he writes this as he thinks about that period of time in his life. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all those who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you. For you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart 
to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give strength to your servant, and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is the word of the Lord. God, we pray now that this word we read would sink deep into our bones, that we would get a greater sense of who you are and of what you're doing in our lives. We pray that this psalm would counsel us, that this psalm would minister to us, that this psalm would not just inform us, but it would mean something deeper than that for us, God, specifically for us and what we're going through in our own individual lives, God, we pray that this psalm would be healing, that it would be comforting, that it would minister to our hearts and to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. If a survey was taken around Pittsburgh, let's say down the street somewhere, it could be in Squirrel Hill, maybe in another neighborhood, and this survey asked the survey participants to use words, phrases to describe Christianity. Survey asked, hey, how would you describe Christianity? A few words or a few phrases. What do you think most of those words and phrases would be? Do you think they would be words like poor? Needy? What about preservation, the need of God to preserve my life? That's what Christianity is. What about calling to God while crying, while crying all the day? What about pleading for grace? Is Christianity described as calling upon God during troublesome days? That's what Psalm 86 says is one aspect of Christianity, the one side of Christianity, the realistic, the honest, the real, the authentic side of Christianity. And then on the other hand, it says this about what Christianity is. Having one soul made glad by God, experiencing the steadfast love of a good and forgiving God, having one's prayer answered by God, Glorifying the great God because of his wondrous works, because of what he does. Being taught by God to walk in God's truth. Having one's heart united to fear God's name. Thanking God with one's whole heart because God's steadfast love has delivered me from death. Having God showcase in his people a sign of his favor because he has comforted and helped his people. That's what Psalm 86 says is Christianity. If somebody was surveyed and they answered in those words, they would be reciting basically back to the one doing the survey, Psalm 86. So even in the Old Testament, we see good descriptions of Christianity in the book of Psalms, especially as the men have been preaching through here 
over the last months, years maybe, I'm not sure how long. But if you think back to the first batch of words, the words that were very honest, poor, needy, preservation, calling on God while you're crying out all day, if you think of only those words to describe Christianity, if Christianity was described only in those type of words, that would only be half of what Christianity really is. And it would be depressing. It would be kind of defeatist, too. It would be a little bit demotivating to only recognize how we're falling short and how much we need God. But if you think of the second half of words that sounded a little bit more positive and upbeat and a little bit more uh, motivating, and you forgot about the first batch of words that were very realistic and honest, you would have a Christianity that's a little bit over-optimistic, a little bit Pollyannish, a little bit not in touch with real life, like come to church with all this stress and pain and trouble in my life, walk into church and feel like church isn't even speaking to them. I feel like I'm just going through a religious exercise and going through the motions. Then leave church and be reminded of the trouble again, because at the church there was this way of speaking about Christianity that wasn't really in touch with real life. It wasn't very down to earth. But when we think about Psalm 86, it connects both batches of words. It's realistic, yet it's hopeful. It's realistically hopeful. Uh, there's a book written by Ed Welsh. Anyone ever hear of that guy? No, I'm sorry, not him. Paul David Tripp, about marriage. And he has those two terms to describe what marriage is. He says marriage is realistically hopeful when you're doing it the Christian way. There's some hard stuff about marriage. But then there's hope that God's going to be able to work things out within your marriage. So I had that in mind when I was thinking of these two terms. Psalm 86, that's how you could sum it up. It's realistic, yet it's hopeful at the same time. It's realistic about our condition, yet it's hopeful about God's provision for us while we're in that condition. It allows us to be honest and come to God and express and lament this psalm is like a lament psalm. We can lament our troubles and our sorrows to God and then He'll provide in the midst of that, after we do that. Even when it feels like He's not doing that, He's providing in some way. So there sometimes can seem like there's a, a disconnect between real pain, real sorrow, real trouble, and... Christianity, sometimes. I've experienced that. Sometimes it seems like there's a disconnect. I'm going through real stuff, yet I walk into church, and I'm not thinking of city reform, but I walk into church, and you're not talking to me about that stuff. It's not reaching me. You're not coming down to my level and talking about some real stuff. I thought when God worked in your life, it was about Him really getting deep down in there and helping you with real pain, real trouble, real... Sorrow. Two scholars, a man by the name of Straw and another man by the name of Van Horn, put it this way when they speak about the disconnection and then about how the Psalms have, make a connection for us between real pain and God and Christianity. They say this, quote, This disconnect is real and it's deeply problematic. But the Psalms offer a remedy. The language of lament and disorientation, 
which in the Psalms is shown to be part and parcel of the life of faith and the life with God. Not only a part, but a major part. The backbone of the Psalter is this. Grief, anger, loss, lament. This too is what being faithful is all about. Think about that. Grief, loss, anger, lament, sorrow, pain. That's the life of faith. That's Christianity. That gives me hope because there's times where I feel like that. There's some anger. There's some loss. There's some lament. And the Psalms show that there is no new life through denial. So if we're going to experience this new life, we can't deny our pain and our sorrow and what we're going through. Especially between us and God. Maybe we don't need to announce to everybody on social media what we're going through, right? But at least to the Lord, we can come to Him realistically and honestly. But the new life can and does come through honesty about pain, candor about misery, sincerity about loss, all addressed to the God who hears and who is worthy of praise and receptive of lament. The Psalter, full of laments and songs of thanksgiving, testifies to these truths. Who can claim to know better than it? End quote. However, at the same time, there's a certain style of Christianity that even takes that kind of quote too far. It's a style of Christianity that's morbidly defeatist, demotivating, even depressing, distressing. It's too negative. It's disconnected from the other side, from the hopeful side. It's a little bit too realistic only. It gets encapsulated in its own realism and gets paralyzed there and wallows in it. But Psalm 86 presents the Christian life not as naively optimistic on the one side, detached from real pain, or depressingly realistic on the other side. A little bit too much about this pain. It's not over-optimistic and it's not over-pessimistic. Psalm 86 balances those two things out beautifully. Psalm 86 teaches us that we can face our harsh reality, and it is harsh sometimes, is it not? Our harsh reality with hope. We can have a little bit of hope even when it feels like there is none. Even when it feels like maybe even going back to that old lifestyle is going to be the solution. Or whatever else we might think when we're going through a harsh time, when we're having a troublesome day. We don't need to despair of our trouble or deny our trouble. Sometimes we're going through troublesome days and it can be very despairing. So much so that for me to even think about that is too much. So i got to deny it. I have to put the fake smile on and pretend like everything's great. I'm really deep down. It's not, but I feel like I can't look at that inside of me and look at that trouble because it's going to drown me. It's going to kill me. It's going to take me out. Psalm 86 can keep you afloat even if the water feels like it's rising and it feels like you're about to go under. So David moves between realistically describing his condition. We see David doing this realistic, hopeful thing in Psalm 86. And to hopefully expecting God's provision. Those two themes emerge and submerge throughout Psalm 86. So the first thing we're going to look at is David's description of his condition. His realistic description. Comes to God, not acting like everything's great. But at the same time, 
He expects God's provision. He doesn't get bogged down in his reality. Rather, he confesses that and looks to God for hope and help in his reality. So first, the realistic description of David's condition. And we see these, or this description in verses 14 through 17 and verses 1 through 7. And even the way the text is broken up in the bulletin is perfect. So there's double spaces right where I was spacing the text out in my own mind when I was preparing this. So if you see before 7 and 8, or in between 7 and 8, there's more white space there. That's a nice chunk, verses 1 through 7. It's 14 through 17. You see there's a space above 14. That's a nice chunk there too. So we're going to look at those two chunks first and be thinking of David's life situation here, his condition, starting at verse 14. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, look at the contrast here, now he's getting hopeful. But you, O Lord, are a good and are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor, or really show with me or in me, showcase in me a sign of your favor. That's really what that means there. David himself would be a sign of the God of God's favor. That those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So what is your, your life situation now? That real thing that you're going through, that hard thing that maybe you haven't even shared with many people because you're not sure how they're going to respond. Maybe you feel like you're bothering them. I can feel that way a lot. I don't want to share with you like the pain right now because it's going to bother you. I'm going to bother you. I'm going to bug you. That thing, what's going on for you there in your life situation? Maybe there's people rising up against you in some way. Maybe not like how Saul rose up against David, but in some way because, <laughs> because you're a Christian though. That's what this psalm is talking about. You know, we can get mild persecution maybe at work if you work in a place that not conducive to Christianity, maybe does not promote the likability of Christianity, and uh, maybe people aren't seeking to kill us like they are seeking to do to our brothers and sisters in other countries, which this psalm helps us empathize with those people, even if we're not going through our own deep, serious persecution, but you're at your job and maybe you're just getting the cold shoulder, maybe people ignore you, maybe people think you're a fool. Because you're a Christian, and in some mild sense, you know, people are rising up against you there. And that can be tough to deal with. It can be challenging. It can be confusing. I thought God was supposed to improve my life, better my life. Now it seems like I became a Christian, and these people at my job are treating me different now, treating me in a way that doesn't feel Do you need God to turn to you, to give something to you, to save you from himself, from the punishment that sin deserves, but also to save you from that situation that you're in. Do you need salvation 
from your situation. David teaches you that crying out to the Lord, although it may seem like it doesn't really do anything, has anyone ever felt that? Like, I'm going to cry out to God, but it doesn't feel like it's doing anything. But this, where else are we going to turn? What else are we going to turn to? Those things that, other things we can cry out to. They promise a lot, but they don't come through on their promise. They might give us short-term instant gratification and a quick fix and make us feel good in the moment, help us emotionally handle a difficult situation. But in the long run, what happens? Things get worse. And we wish I just would have cried out to the Lord, that we wish we would have cried out to Him in the beginning and not listened to the other things that call out to us. The pornography, the getting addicted to your job, the money, the wanting to rise in the social hierarchy for the wrong reasons because of the acceptance you think and the love you think you're going to get from other people, etc. Or drugs, alcohol, anything that can alter your mind or your mood. Those things offer a quick fix. And they say, yes, I'm better than crying out to the Lord. I'm better than lamenting like David. See, it's, it's tangible. It's going to do something to you. You're going to feel it. You're going to be different. Temporary. And you're going to be worse in the long run. Right? The consequences of it. Well, if we're not being persecuted or oppressed, maybe we, like I said, we can empathize. The psalm teaches us to be em- empathetic towards those who are receiving persecution. Our brothers and sisters in Christ right now. You could put one shoe in the shoe of your brother or your sister who's receiving persecution and put your other foot in David's shoe. Walk in their shoes. Walk in David's shoe. Walk in the shoe of your persecuted brother or sister to help you empathize with them. So David doesn't deny his troublesome condition. Rather, he faces it and uses it as motivation to pray. He faces his situation, and he uses his situation. He doesn't allow his situation to use him. How often do I allow my situations to use me? Oh, here I am again. Again, it's this person, it's that place, it's that thing, and that's why I am the way I am right now. That's why I'm responding in this sinful way. David shows us here that he doesn't do that. He responds in a different way kind of way. He uses his situation rather than allowing his situation to use him and to crush him. And he uses it as what? As motivation to pray. And then we see more of his condition. That's revealed in verses 1 through 7 of Psalm 86. You see the inscription, the title there, a psalm or a prayer of David. This is how he starts it off. Incline your ear, O God. You could see him humbly, but expectantly going to the Lord in prayer. Lord, incline your ear. Listen to me. God doesn't have ears. It's a way of speaking. It's a way of saying, God, please pay attention to me. I know there's other things going on in the world, and I may not seem that significant to you at this point, but please incline your ear to me and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Now, That's interesting. Look at that. In one breath he says, I'm poor and needy. And the next breath he says, I'm godly. Like Jim was talking about, the Psalms really show us the depth and the richness of the emotional life that Christianity allows you to have. So there's a way that we can sense our 
poorness or neediness, spiritually speaking, or maybe even physically speaking as well, and at the same time recognize that God's working in our lives to make us godly. There can be both of those realities at the same time. It's a beautiful thing. It's a deep thing. The, the, the uh, uh, Psalms and, and then in general Christianity allows us to have a deep emotional life. It allows us to experience emotions at the same time that seem contradictory. Allows us to think thoughts at the same time that seem contradictory, but they rise above human reason. Christianity rises above that. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. That's a phrase, those last four words there. You are my God. That's a covenantal phrase. God is the God of his people and we are his people. We see that phrase throughout the Old Testament elsewhere. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For or because you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of trouble, I call upon you and you answer me. Thinking now of the New Testament and Jesus Christ, because ultimately all of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, like a man named Michael Horton said, is like the uh, trailer to the movie. See bits and pieces of Jesus, kind of harder to see him compared to the New Testament. But the New Testament is the full movie reveal. We see, oh, it's about Jesus. That stuff in the Old Testament that we weren't totally sure was about Christ, okay, now we know it's about Jesus. And think of that last verse there that I read. Verse 7, in the day of my trouble I call upon you for you answer me. So David was answered by God. Jesus, for a certain period of time on the cross, wasn't. God didn't answer him. Jesus cried out to him, and God didn't answer him for a period of time. Then he was resurrected. He was vindicated. He was shown to be Messiah. But for a period of time, Jesus experienced something even way worse than we ever will and what David ever experienced. The silence of God on the cross. Nothing. Just echoing off the walls like my voice now. And not hearing anything back from the Lord is God, his Father. And he did that for you when you feel that way. So he could relate to you and help you in that time. When you call out and it feels like your prayers are bouncing off a 45 foot thick steel plank above your head. There's no way it's getting up to heaven. Jesus was there. Jesus felt that way. For you. He can relate to you. He learned things through what he suffered. And there was a time that Christ had it much worse than David. So if we're not calling upon God during our troublesome days, even though it can be hard to call upon Him when it feels like He's not in who or what are we calling upon? What are we calling out to? What have we called out to this past week, this past month, this past year? Have those people or have those things really, really satisfied ultimately in the long run? Yeah, they get short-term satisfaction or we would really be nuts to even do them for like a little bit because they don't even give any satisfaction in that case. But no, they usually do give short-term satisfaction. 
They promise a lot, but they don't come through. What have we been looking to? What have we been calling out to? What people, what places, what things? It's amazing that even when we continue to do that as Christians, God still is merciful and good and forgiving as this psalm teaches us. Why? Because it's not about our performance. It's about Jesus Christ and what He did for us and how we can be found in Him and God can treat us as if we lived the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Does what or who we call out to answer with loving, gracious, soul-gladdening provision or does it give that guilt, that low-level guilt? There it is again. I did it again. I clicked on it again. I took it again. I said it again. I listened to it again. I ate it again. Yeah, it felt good for what? A couple minutes? Maybe a little longer? Then the guilt sets in. It's not soul-gladdening. It's soul-crushing. But on the other hand, if we are privileged to be in the presence of somebody who's going through a troublesome time, Think of it not about yourself now, but think of other people going through trouble. If we're privileged to be in the presence of someone who's suffering, someone who's experiencing trouble, what or who should we tell them to call upon? Or should we even tell them anything at all? If somebody's really going through a tough time, troublesome day is upon them again. And it seems like they're never going to get out of this troublesome period of time. What do we say? Do we say anything? Well, maybe or maybe not. It depends. But I think it's wiser to say nothing. Rather, we should cover ourselves in the healing balm of Psalm 86 to make sure we have that Psalm 86 all over us and coming out of us and as an aroma coming off of us and minister more with our presence and actions and less with our words. Psalm 86 should be sensed and felt by the sufferer, by the person you're ministering to who's going through a troublesome day, more than stated and taught by us. And sometimes filling the silence, I can think of this in my counseling work I've done over the years. Sometimes filling the silence when I'm talking to somebody in trouble is about me, it's not about me. It's about me. I want to fill the silence because I feel uncomfortable right now and I don't, oh, this is tough. There's a lot of emotions going, rising up in me, and I can't deal with that, so I'm just going to like ask a question about something that maybe isn't going to steer you in the direction you needed to go when you were telling me about your troubles today. It was, it was more about me, because I felt uncomfortable. And that silence, and it is tough, that silence feels deafening at times when someone tells you a hard thing, right? You're like, what do I even say? Well, but you feel like you need to say something. What do you say to someone who says that when they were five, their own father raped them, locked them in an attic, and starved them? I've heard those kind of stories. What do you wow, man, when you hear that, it's very uncomfortable. And sometimes I want to feel the silence because of me and not the person. So it could be better to just minister with my presence at that point and not say anything. David Pallison, a good Christian counselor, he's the head of the CCEF, organization says this in his open letter to the suffering Christian. What words can I say to you when your life is hard and you are hurting? If we were face to face, I probably wouldn't start with words at all. I would want you to talk when you're able. 
I want you to know what you're going through, and I want to know what you're going through and what it's like for you and how you are doing. Simply being present and conveying that tears, heartache, and confusion are valid would probably be the most helpful. Many wise Christians have commented that Job's counselors did well until what? Until they opened their mouths. Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. <laughs> and I certainly don't think there is some magic word that will make everything better, end quote. So that's David Pallison, a man who has a lot of experience in talking to people who are going through troublesome days. So we see David describes his condition realistically, and then we're going to close on this. We're going to look at the hopeful expectation he has of God's provision, that God's going to come through for him, that God's going to help him. Verses 8 through 13. He's going through what he's going through. I mean, picture David going through what he went through with Saul, seeking his life, yet David can say this kind of stuff about God. There is none like you among the gods. There is only one true God, Father, Son, Spirit. But there was a lot of false gods who claimed to be gods, but they really weren't. Oh, Lord, nor are there any works like yours. He can say that even when the work of God in his life seems to be very difficult at that time. He can still say that. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you. He's able to thank God. During that time, O oh Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of the grave, from Sheol. So David is realistic yet hopeful because of who God is and what God does. After we're honest about our trouble and pain, we feel right in praising and thanking God. So the ultimate reason why Christianity balances itself within the realistically hopeful gray area, it's a gray area between the two extremes of naive triumphalism and morbid defeatism on the other side is because of Jesus Christ, not David. Jesus is a real person with real human flesh who experienced real human troubles. He was realistic, he was honest, he was familiar with trouble. And Christ was triumphant over death, over trouble over sin, over persecution from his enemies, Christ keeps us balanced between the two extremes of being overly optimistic and overly pessimistic. Christ is a person who has experienced our trouble and has defeated our trouble. He ministers as a person who embodies the realistic human condition and the power of God's provision. In his one person, you see that in the person of Christ. Christ in his person unites realism and it unites hope. He took on a real human flesh, messy flesh. Not sinful flesh, but it was human flesh. Right? There's the realistic part, yet there's hope. Because he also was 100% God at the same time. There's 100% man, 100% God in one person. The two natures of Christ. His heart is united to fear God's name. And if we unite our hearts to Christ's heart, to Christ's heart, we can face our troublesome days with realistic hope.